Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton, and in this episode, I speak with Malia Cohen, chair of California's Board of Equalization. We talked about what the heck is the Board of Equalization, her current campaign to become the chief financial officer for the world's sixth largest economy, and how she loves working on fiscal policy because it touches all aspects of people's lives. We also talked about what it's like to govern in such a large state the need to fund childcare, criminal justice reform, and how a grade school field trip to City Hall changed her life. And don't miss her recommendation as a self-described foodie of one of her favorite restaurants in her hometown of San Francisco. Enjoy. All right, Malia Cohen, welcome to an honorable profession. Awesome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So fun to talk to you. And I have to say, I think this may be a first. I love talking to people from California. I think you're the first person I've talked to who represents me. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're in Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara. So I am your constituent, as you are on the Board of Equalization. You are the chair of the board. And I thought that maybe for people who are outside California, they would be interested to know what is a Board of Equalization, because you are the only elected board, tax representative board in the country. So what does the board do? Yeah, well, you actually just nailed it. Big picture, we are the only independently elected, democratically elected tax board. And I represent one fourth of the state of California, which is approximately 10 million people. I represent 23 counties from all the way from your county down south in Santa Barbara to the northernmost part of the state of California in Del Norte County. And so within that healthy mix of 23 counties, I've got urban, I've got suburban, I've got agriculture, I've got rural, all counties that I represent. The topography is very diverse. The land needs are very diverse. And so the control, I mean, the uh, Board of Equalization is a property tax agency. And so we are charged with the responsibility of creating the rules, creating the regulations and the guidelines that assessors use to assess all property, all kinds of property. So if you think about the vat that wine permits in those wineries that are in the Napa Valley and in Sonoma, that is a property. And so we develop the rules to assess that. Obviously, there are buildings and there are homes that are also assessed their property value. And so we work to make sure that those rules are very clear. Now, you would think that, well, how hard and difficult can it be? But it is, it's a very serious business because it brings in $80 billion annually for the state of California and property tax dollars go straight into public education. So I know you and I value public education. And so making sure that the system is healthy, that it's robust and that it is working is important to make sure that the state of California's government, basic government functions are functioning. Yeah, I love that. I just want to underscore for people what you just said, because we talked to a lot of electeds from all over the country who represent 
you know, tiny towns to, you know, even smaller states, but you represent 10 million people. You're one of five on the board, as you said, all the way from the Oregon border down to where I am, which is, as you said, kind of the tip of Southern California, maybe. I Just in terms of like legislating, and, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, but you're running statewide too at, at the moment, you know, thinking about legislating and governing such a big area, so many people. How do you think about that in terms of staying connected to people, in terms of, you know, kind of just being their representative in such a big place? So you're right. It is huge. So that's why I think having a personality of a person that likes to travel is a benefit. So prior to the pandemic, our outreach strategy was very different. We actually hit the road. We went to all these different counties. I made sure when I was campaigning in 2018 and then also went elected that I connected with each and every one of my assessors, each and every county board of supervisors and just the local government structure so I can introduce myself to them, explain my role and really begin to foster that relationship. So we hit the road. I mean, and I'm telling you, the state of California is absolutely beautiful. And the best part about it is, is I like to eat my way through the different counties. So I'm like, hey, what's your county known for? What's your favorite restaurant? And so people make all kinds of recommendations. And so we really have a good time. My team and I, we are meandering all through the state of California, the highways and the byways and the back roads eating. But it's not a bad deal. Now, with that said, the state of California has, for the Board of Equalization, there are five members on this body. Four of us are elected to represent districts. I represent District 2. Now, that fifth seat, which will probably come up later in our conversation, but that fifth seat is the state controller. And as you know, the state controller certainly runs the entire state as a member of the Board of Equalization. Only the people that live in District 2 have the ability to cast a vote for me. Now, it's considered a statewide position because I have purview and I still cast votes that affect the entire state of California, even though District 2 residents have elected me. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So you are running statewide right now for controller. Another one of the things that I think people don't really know what that means or what it does. And as the chief fiscal officer that you would be for the state, I mean, people, again, don't realize, or maybe we like to say it when we're here, you know, that California, if it was a country, would be the sixth largest economy in the world. It's a massive economy, so it would be a very big job. What are you hoping to accomplish if you are elected? You know what? Let me just start off. You did a great overview. I applaud you. You did your due diligence. The controller is elected. It's the chief fiscal officer for the state of California. She oversees the tax collection. She keeps the state's books. She makes sure that payments are paid in full. She handles the refunds to counties and different municipalities. And this is what I like. She signs state employees' checks. So Betty Yee is our current controller. She is also on the board of equalization. So she is my colleague and she has endorsed me in this race and she definitely signs my check. So I always say people pay attention to the person that signs their checks. No doubt about it. So if people don't know much about the controller's office, they know one thing that if they work for the state of California or they're doing business with California, that is her signature on these checks. So that is, I think, a really important point to put out. She's playing employees. She's overseeing some of the industry regulations. And also to note that the controller is one of eight statewide constitutional officers that are elected every four years. She's a a key leader in California and works with various state agencies. She works with the legislature and the governor to make sure that California's economy is working for everyone. 
And so as a steward of the state finances, the controller, what she does is that she serves on several different influential government bodies and authorities that range from state public lands management. So if you're an environmentalist, you care about this role because of the state public lands to crime victim compensation fund. If you are a victim of a crime and you can apply to help get some tax dollars to help you put your life back together again. So there are many functions that are very far and vast. She's also a member of numerous financing authorities, several fiscal oversight entities, which includes the California Franchise Tax Board. And everybody knows what the Franchise Tax Board is about because that's where you go to pay your taxes, your personal income taxes that you're filing there. And so, and I think the other thing I want to notice is that the nation's two largest public pension funds, CalPERS and CalSTRS, she sits on this body. So she has a vote. So the controller provides all of these different financial bodies and institutions with leadership. She gives policy advice on investments, on environmental issues, on health issues, on tax issues, and quite frankly, a lot more. So it's considerable position. She's got a considerable amount of influence. And the bottom line is to make sure that the California's tax dollars are being spent fairly, that they're spent transparently, efficiently, and of course, responsibly. Yeah. It's a lot. And you have such an interesting background of experience you would bring to this. And I kind of want to hit a number of those points. But I think I want to start with kind of the big picture question, which is, you know, I know that we're in this interesting time period, right? Coming back from COVID, rebuilding our economy post-COVID, a responsibility and an opportunity to build back better, to use the president's phrase, but, you know, to try to address some of the longstanding inequities that were there before COVID that were, you know, shown to be so significant during COVID, whether it was broadband access or healthcare disparities or go down the list. So I'm just curious, and I know this is an issue that you've talked a lot about over your career of kind of equity. And so when you're thinking about this role, either both in the role you have now and the role you're running for, what do you think that are some of the things we've got to focus on to build a California in America that works better? You know what? I started answering this question earlier when you said, how do I touch all these people that I represent? The second part of that conversation is technology. This platform that you and I are talking on has opened up a world. It has allowed me to connect with constituents that I have never really connected on a pretty regular and consistent base. And it's efficient. Think of when you you spend your subscription for Microsoft Teams or for Zoom or whatever platform you're using, WebEx, and bam, we're connected. And more so now, I think that connection is important as we do begin to transition out of the pandemic. And I do see technology as one of the great equalizers, no pun intended, being on the board of equalization. But in all seriousness, it levels the playing field. Now, it makes some assumptions that broadband is stable wherever we go. And the reality is, is that it's not stable in every part of the state of California. As rich as this nation is and rich as the state is, there are still parts of California, the rural parts, where broadband is unstable. And you might recall hearing news reports about different parts of California, how students would go to Taco Bell or different fast food or go to the mall, go to public places to get that stable internet connection. So although we are working to bring more equity to how tax dollars are spent, I think there are some glaring gaps that have remained. One, stable broadband is absolutely critical for businesses to thrive as well as our students to thrive. The other portion about an issue that I am concerned about is childcare. 
childcare, a lot of women have left the workforce. We know that payday equity was just a couple of days ago. We know that women are still not making the same sense on the dollar as a man. And women of color are making even less than our white sister counterparts. So when I'm thinking about childcare and I'm thinking about women that are leaving the economy and I'm thinking about all these different things, how do I apply that to what I'm doing on the board of equalization and in the future as a state controller? And the one thing that still keeps coming out is that We really do need a controller and a person that prioritizes working families, that is working to combat not just our homeless problems. We know that that's a crisis, but making sure that we're connecting the dots. You can't go to work if you don't have childcare. You heard my daughter in the background, and I wouldn't be able to be on this podcast with you if I did not have that level of support. Everyone doesn't have that. It's a privilege. And so being able to present myself and being able to talk with you, we shouldn't forget you're a mom. You know how challenging and expensive childcare is. So technology equalizes it. It levels the playing field. It brings us together. And I think it does allow us to continue to support working mothers. There are other tax dollar initiative programs that have expanded the childcare program that members of the legislature, particularly the Women's Caucus, that they have advocated for and that the governor, rightfully so, has signed. So you'll see more, you will continue to see more childcare slots opening up across the entire state of California. So, I mean, that's just like one example. Let me know if you want more. Yeah, no, I love it. I'm glad you brought up childcare too. I mean, you're right. I don't know about you. When I had my first daughter, who's now 17, I was like shocked that there was like, there's no system. Like you have to go figure this out and it's so complicated. And, you know, and to your point about it was only exasperated during COVID and we saw the the cost. So I'm so happy that you brought that one up. We I'll circle back if there's more, but I I have other questions I want to get to, which one is that you talked about briefly. I've mentioned the role that you play with CalSTRS and CalPERS. No, no. I spent eight years on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and like seven sitting on the uh, employee pension fund. That's exactly right. That's where I was going with that question. So having that experience, I think it's kind of an under appreciated or under discussed idea that, you know, that these are huge funds and that choices can be made that align with our values as a state. Absolutely. A lot of this work, I think in San Francisco, thinking about climate, I know the governor has been asking his state agencies to divest from Russia after the invasion. Let's talk about that for a minute. How do you think about your role in using your leverage for those big funds that you manage to drive the values and goals of our state? Well, you know, the values and goals that drive me personally are the ones that I put out into the world. And I articulate where my values are very clearly when I'm talking to voters. I want them to know this is where I stand on this set of issues, but these are the values that drive me that help me get to this conclusion. I also communicate to voters like this is my thought process and my leadership style. So you understand because the reality is, is that these issues come and go. Yeah, it's divesting from Russia today. But remember, it was divesting from gun manufacturers a couple years ago when Sandy Hook hit. So the thing is, is to be conscious and to be aware and to lead with their values and not be afraid. So you're right. When I was on the retirement board in San Francisco, it was a $22 billion fund at that time. And I did lead the effort to divest about $100 million of fossil fuel dollars into a fossil fuel free index fund. And it was very controversial. It took about three years to get everyone, even myself, I had to get educated and then get comfortable and understanding how this is impacting. Because bottom line is, is that you're always in the back of your mind, you're thinking about the retirees. And I was at that time was a San Francisco employee and I want my retirement there to be there when I get ready for it. So I don't want to mess it up. 
But here we are several years later, and that retirement fund was at $22 billion. I think it's something at $30 billion now. I mean, so it has grown. So the point that I'm making is, is that divestment from these fossil fuels into other healthier ESG, for example, the more environmentally sound, socially conscious index funds or funds, period, you can make money. You can make money. And you're constantly hearing, even now, as gas prices are astronomical here in the state of California. Astronomical. It's painful. I don't even want to utter how much we spend on gas. Another clear reason why we need to start to divest and to uh, divorce ourselves from our addiction to fossil fuel. And this is a slow but intentional process, just like divesting, just like making any kind of investment decision. It's a slow process. It's not something that is done lightly. It's not something that's done overnight. It took three years to do in San Francisco. The state of California is still discussing. But, you know, we're talking about you want to be cautious about divestment because you don't want to divest because it's the topic of the day. Right. You heard discussions about divestment from South Africa to protest apartheid. Right. You heard about divestment from companies that have homophobic or anti-gay messages. Now we're hearing about Russia. You heard like an earlier example I said about gun manufacturers. So we really do need to be aware about what we're doing and what the long term impact will be to our bottom line, to our funds, because in the end, we have a responsibility to everyone that is served in the state of California. But with that said, There are alternative ways to make money. And I am not afraid to lead us in that direction. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you for helping kind of talk about how important it is to be thoughtful. And and at the end of the day, you're right. You have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that those funds are performing for people that, that are going to need them. Again, your experience is so diverse. I was not aware another role that you have played for a while. I think you just retired to run for statewide as the president of the San Francisco Police Commission that you for a while and really focused on police accountability and transparency. Tell me a little bit about that experience. And that's been a, you know, such an important role, uh, particularly now in the wake of so many of these high profile deaths like George Floyd. You know, I'm really glad you asked about that question because oftentimes people again say, what's the intersectionality about being the police commission, board of supervisor, controller? The bottom line is, is that it affects and it touches people. And I absolutely loved my time on the San Francisco Police Commission. I did step down two weeks ago to file my paperwork to run for controller. But my appointment to the police commission stemmed from the work that I did for a number of years on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. So although I was a statewide elected, Mayor London Breed asked me to come back and to serve on this commission. And I did with a joyful heart. And we were able to make really make a lot of changes. We had changed between my tenure on the Board of Supervisors and the police commission, many policies. Now the police commission is an independent, civilian-led body, and our responsibility is to provide oversight to the department. So that means that we are working with the department on their policies. They're what we call them uh, department DGOs, Department General Orders, and also correction of law enforcement that are behaving badly. So discipline hearings are what we preside over in their legal proceedings. So in my time in working in the police reform space, we have gotten rid of the chokehold We have gotten rid of no-knock search warrants. Remember, that's the uh, policy that killed Breonna Taylor. Chokehold, where the uh, carotid restraint was the policy that killed Eric Gardner in New York. 
kneeing on a neck is not something that we train our officers to do. So George Floyd, when that matter came up, we did not have that policy. So my job was to really pay attention to how we are training our officers and how we are disciplining them when they violate the rules. And so we, one of the other things that I was really excited about was changing the use of force policies, changing how when officers are in an officer involved shooting, how these cases are investigated. No longer do we allow the department to investigate themselves. We have an independent body that provides oversight that comes in and does an investigation alongside with the police department as they conduct their own investigation. And this department is called the Department of Police Accountability. It came about, quite honestly, back in 2017, 2016, there was a shooting that just really rocked me, that just hurt me to the core about this young Black man that was killed, 22 bullets riddled his body, and he had a steak knife in his hand, and he was having a mental break. And so we've also changed who responds to the mental health crisis on the streets. So we are no longer having law enforcement respond. So as you can see, there's a lot of changes that we have had, that we have done, and just like the last seven years that has had a positive impact on San Francisco and that has been a model for the entire state of California. And so I am grateful to be on the team. I was not the only one. It was a team effort to really end the usher this change. But the change has been hard. It's been difficult. And you do need political will and you need muscle to keep pushing. I've had many challenges with the San Francisco Police Officers Association who have resisted change. Department is in a unique place. We don't have enough officers so we're trying to build up morale and create an environment where officers will continue to thrive and want to protect and serve. But this is the climate that we're living in, in America, where law enforcement are no longer able to shoot and kill black and brown bodies and expect to get away with it. I'm happy to be part of this conversation and will continue to be a force to ensure that there's justice. Yeah, yeah. You've done so, as we just touched on in our brief time together, but I mean, you've done, you're so passionate about policy, obviously. You're so passionate about what government can do. Your breadth of experience from being on the board and the police commission and and now on BOE is so big. I want to go back to like what got you into this in the first place. What brought you into public service? I read something and I have to know if this is true that you went on a field trip to City Hall (laughs) when Diane Feinstein was mayor of San Francisco and you were like, you met her and you're like, I'm going to work here one day. And fast forward, you worked for Mayor Newsom in City Hall. Is that true? That is an absolute true story. And it goes back to when I was eight years old. And God bless Miss Nicolosi, my third grade teacher, one of my favorite teachers. She took us on this tour. It was a tour of San Francisco. So we went to several different landmarks, right? But one of the places was San Francisco City Hall. And the building is so beautiful. The dome, the marble staircase, the gold leaf inlay. I mean, it's just an amazing building. And I was mesmerized. And I remember thinking, I don't know what they do here, but I'm going to work here one day. And I seriously have been on this pathway since I was eight years old to work in the city and county of San Francisco. And so when I got elected, I was like, yes, I did it. Now what? Luckily, we were able to figure it out. We had eight solid years of good legislation that we were able to put forward. And then I did have a moment where I was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? And I made the decision to run for the Board of Equalization. My predecessor is a woman named Fiona Ma, who is now our current state treasurer. She was on the board and I just kind of watched how she worked and how she maneuvered. And I enjoyed my time and service on the budget and audit committees. And I enjoyed the fiscal side of public finance. 
And so I just went for the Board of Equalization. I convinced 2 million people to vote for me and I won and I haven't looked back. This is the greatest gift ever. I love the work that I'm doing. So wonderful. And people, you know, think of the fiscal side of things as maybe, you know, complicated or, you know, opaque. But I mean, to your point, it touches every aspect of people's lives and the budget, right? But at the end of the day, the budget really is our our priorities and our values written down on what we're going to spend money on. So it's such an important part of governing. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for your service on that. I also want to talk to you for a minute about, you know, we didn't talk about the fact that you're really a trailblazer in many ways. You're the first African-American woman on the board of equalization. If you were elected controller, you'd be the first black woman to be elected controller. And I know that you've spent a lot of time helping other women and other people of color get elected around the state as well. What is kind of, you know, it's been such a big year for this. And it's it's so exciting to see so many new faces, diverse faces get elected. Obviously, Kamala Harris being elected vice president of the United States was such an impactful, powerful moment of people really seeing this representation come to life. How do you think about that when you're helping others, when you're running yourself, you know, about the need for representation of women and people of color in all levels of government? Well, I don't really think about it, actually. I I didn't realize that I was the only Black woman elected to the Board of Equalization until I got there and someone told me. And I didn't enter the controller's race thinking I'm going to be the first blah, blah, you know, African-American to take the seat. That actually is the furthest thing from my mind. I am really running because I believe I have a set of skills and a unique background that I can bring to the conversation. I believe that the nation, not only just the nation, but the state of California is also churning the tide about, they're growing restless about who's getting elected and what they're actually doing. More importantly, who they're serving. I have seen how lobbyists and lawyer policy I've seen and personally have experienced how they derail, how relationships really do matter. And so I've seen the negative side of that. And so I want to be a positive being and a positive force. And so I do see the way we change the face of power in this country, the power structure, is by putting more women and people of color into the pipeline, getting them trained, getting them elected, getting them on different boards and commissions. So this is service that I do while in office, while out of office, it doesn't matter. I've been affiliated with the Emerge Network, Emerge California Network, for almost 20 years now as part of the original, I think it was the third class that graduated from Emerge, and that was in 2005. And I've been helping every step of the way. I firmly believe that we need to be broadening the tent, bringing more people to the table. And the way you do that is by electing more people who are going to push these issues forward. Hannah Beth Jackson, she's a retired senator out of Santa Barbara, your area, wrote landmark legislation that requires these corporate boards to put women on their bodies. And this was, what was this, like 2007, if I'm not mistaken? I mean, it's just fairly recent. And the rancor (laughs) and the resistance that she received, but also that the legislation received. I mean, it was just phenomenal how resistant people are to change. So I just use that as kind of like a real example. And we have changed the dynamics. I always said that I thought finance was probably the last area where you'll start to see more parity, gender parity, as well as equity when it comes to leadership roles. And it's slowly happening as we incorporate more women on boards, corporate boards. But I'm happy to be just one more 
person on the battlefield pushing to bring about this type of change. I firmly believe in it. I have a daughter. You've got two daughters. I mean, I think we are raising a future generations. They're watching us. We're modeling behavior that we want them to be able to model when they become adults. And that includes our allies, our male counterparts, the fathers and grandfathers and sons that are also a part of this community. So We need everyone to embrace this movement in order for us to get out and solve some of these problems. Crisisness, affordable housing, you know, I mean, the cost of milk is high. I mean, like everything is high. Inflation. I mean, like just being more present and paying attention about how money matters and also educating ourselves how money matters. I wasn't an algebra genius, but I saw very quickly how money mattered growing up in the southeast of San Francisco, who got what, when and how much always was evident and played out. And so I really am about equity and bringing people who need more, helping them get what they need so that they can survive and that they're not vulnerable. Yeah, I think that that's right. And thanks for your service on Emerge to it. We have a lot of leaders who've gone through the Emerge program because it's not always, sometimes it takes a little extra effort to convince people to run who are women because they're home raising kids. So, you know, it's not just, hey, we just need more women to run, but, you know, we actually have to develop those structures and those systems to support them to do so. So thank you for that. Women, interestingly enough, women need to be asked several times in order to run. Right, right. You know, I know, you know, men, they don't even need to be asked. They're just self-select and say, I'm running. Yeah, no, it's right. And we tend to undervalue our strengths, our work experience. And we say, well, I'm not really sure. If I didn't really know how to do that. It's like, but you know, yeah, you do. You, you know, these are the skills you have. And so I think it's, it's super important. That's part of the process to get to your point. If we're going to have more diverse voices with different opinions, we have to support them in their bid to run for office. I want to end with a question that we've been doing, which is a fun one. And it goes back to where we started about you being a foodie and running around the state. We've been asking people, and of course, you do represent a huge swath of California, hopefully soon all of California, but we'll go back to San Francisco, where you're from, to ask you if I have 24, and I should point out that I lived in San Francisco, so I have my own ideas about this. But for you, if I have 24 hours in San Francisco, if I'm listening to this podcast, is there a gem or two that you would tell us absolutely should not miss? Yeah. You know what I would do? I would go to Don Ramon's South of Market on 11th Street in the city. I would go during happy hour. I would get a plate of a sampler, the taquitos and the quesadillas and the margaritas. The margaritas, bar none, hands down, are the best. They're nice and strong <laughs> and delicious and refreshing. So that would be one of my top choices that I always bring people and encourage people, the refried beans, like everything. And it's a family environment. A longtime San Francisco family has been running it for decades. And Don Ramones, have you been to Don Ramones, Debbie? Have you heard of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you know how good the food is. This is Mexican food. Yes, I concur. I concur. And of course, they should. no one should leave San Francisco without going to see the Gold Dome and the San Francisco City Hall, as you mentioned earlier, which is absolutely stunning. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and really just your service and all the ways you're thinking about how you use you know, your position to help people around the state is inspiring. So thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. Let's stay in touch. It's been a pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.